Hey, Pioneers, and welcome to episode number 323 of the Pioneering Today podcast. Today's podcast episode is going to be talking about getting started with centuries-old Huga culture gardening. This is a really fun episode because we get to dive back into history and see how different forms of gardening have been used throughout the centuries and some methods, as in the example of hookah culture, I don't want to say have been lost because there have been people that have been practicing them. But as we look at modern society as a whole, there isn't a ton of people who are still using hookah culture gardening, though it is beginning to make a resurgence as homesteading. I, I hate to say that it's trending, because I feel like it almost belittles the movement. However, (laughs) becoming more self-sufficient, growing your own food, and being a modern homesteader is definitely on the growth. There are more and more people who are seeing the need for it, who are wanting to become more self-sufficient. And that means there's more people who are interested in different ways of doing things, especially traditional ways of doing things. And so that means things that were once uh, quote-unquote lost are now becoming found again or being talked about more and practiced more, which makes me very, very happy. So today's episode, we are talking about hugo culture gardening, including the history of it, creating low-cost garden beds, meaning no lumber, no nails, or construction materials, using hugo culture to create permaculture garden beds, and some of the unique soil benefits that hugo culture gardening provides, especially if you live in a northern and or more cold climate, and how it is an excellent option for people who have poor soil, and how you can create 100% natural garden beds with the materials that you can source from your own land, and what that's going to look like and how it may look different based upon what you have available in your region. So an incredible episode that we have got laid out for you. But first, let me introduce myself. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris, fifth generation homesteader, as well as founder of the Pioneering Today Academy, the website melissaknorris.com, the Pioneering Today podcast, which you are listening to, and the YouTube channel, Instagram, and Facebook, all the social things that go where I get to teach hundreds of thousands of people about living homegrown and handmade using simple modern homesteading for a healthy and self-sufficient life. And I am so excited that you are joining us. Before we dive into this episode, if learning how to grow more of your own food and or herbs and using century-old methods that actually work, especially when it's with natural medicine and using herbs medicinally as we move into the colder months, which is usually more cold and flus become on the rise, then you are going to want to make sure if you haven't already that you are on the wait list for my herbal course, which launches on October 20th. And I'm going to be doing a free live herb class. So you need to get on that wait list in order to get access to either of those. Head on over to melissaknorris.com forward slash herb class. All one word, melissaknorris.com forward slash herb class. 
Click on the orange button that says, yes, sign me up. No purchase required. Pop in your name and email and you will get on the wait list with all of the amazing free resources coming your way. Now for today's episode, I am interviewing Autumn. Autumn is from a traditionallife.com and she has been on the podcast before. So in the show notes, the blog post that accompanies today's episode, we will be making sure that we link back to those episodes. Autumn has a very incredible story. One of the things that I find very fascinating about a lot of people who come to homesteading is a lot of us come to the homesteading movement of growing our own food, knowing how it's grown, making sure that it's done so as natural as possible without synthetic pesticides, chemicals, etc., both in our gardening the things that we put into our bodies with our healthcare and then our medicine and of course our food, the cleaning products, all of the things that really encompassing a homesteading lifestyle because we had health issues that were not able to be solved by typical modern medicine. And by turning to homesteading, we were able to find, if not complete healing, a vast improvement in our everyday life and symptoms by homesteading. And so Autumn, in one of our past episodes, shared about her journey with Lyme disease and other things like that and how homesteading has definitely helped her to find a higher level of functioning and some levels of healing. I hate to use the like healing all the way because some diseases you're not able to find complete healing for, but it's such a vast improvement that it's truly amazing. And so I love hearing your stories that you guys share with me even though you might not have the same health journey that I did or that Autumn did with the exact same disease, many of you have found an improvement in your health by moving in to homesteading. Now, for any of the different links and resources that we talk about in this interview with Autumn, you can find those in the blog post that accompanies this episode at melissaknorris.com forward slash 323, just the number 323, melissaknorris.com 323, because this is episode 323. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Autumn, welcome back, my friend, to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thank you for having me back again, Melissa. Yeah, we're just, you know, we're just like old, old hats or, or good friends or we just have to <laughs> chat periodically um, on the podcast and, and bring all of you wonderful people who are listening into the conversation. And right before we started recording, I will do a confession. I asked Autumn, I said... How do you properly pronounce this word? And so we are talking about today the benefits Google culture gardening. Did I say it right? Very good. It? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, I loved it. She she told me she said think Google, but put an H there instead. I'm like, ah, okay, that I can do. And then I, we actually, I said, okay, I, we need to just start recording because I'm going to be asking you too many questions that you're going to have to repeat because I'm fascinated but the where that word came from and its meaning. So Autumn, if you would please repeat that now that we're actually recording. <laughs> sure, sure. So Hugel culture, to the best of my knowledge, is a German word. And this is sort of where this method of gardening we're going to be talking about today, where they, they think it originated. It's a very old practice. And um, Hugel culture simply means hill mound or hill culture. Awesome. Uh, and I actually, my ancestry on my maiden name for my dad's side is German. So one would hmm. think I would have a little bit more base knowledge of that, but I don't because we migrated to the United States uh, like back in the 
the 1700s and a lot okay. of over the years has gotten lost. But I do find that fascinating. So I love that. I feel like we are with all of our advanced technology and science and stuff that we have now in this modern world. It really seems, though, that we are rediscovering a lot of ancient or very old things and realizing that there's actually a lot of benefit to doing things those ways. And we're returning back to or at least bringing them in to more of our modern I don't know if mainstream is really the, the right idea because it's not like you're going to go to a garden center and find information on doing a right. garden. <laughs> right. But I feel like it's it's becoming more of a practice, especially among uh, homesteaders or you know natural minded people, where we're really implementing and bringing a lot of these ways back, or at least bringing even information about that and awareness to people who have maybe never heard of these terms or aren't really sure what they mean. So I I just think that that's actually really cool. So how long have you been practicing and where did you first learn or see about using a Google culture gardening technique? Yeah. So um, I actually had um, a friend in our community was, it was the, that was the first time I actually saw it practiced. And I thought it was very weird when I first heard of it. Um, a hugel culture is sort of a, a multi-layered garden bed that actually uses wood as a base. And so in her garden, that was the first time I had seen it. She had this massive mound and she was growing squash and pumpkins on it. And I thought it was a very peculiar way of gardening. But then actually when my husband and I bought our land, it has very poor soil. And so we knew that alternative gardening was a must. We're basically on a rock bed. And so I was researching and looking for different ways, you know, if we buy this land, how are we going to grow our gardens? Because that was very important to me for health reasons. And then I also um, online, I have sort of an online acquaintance who had also done Hugo culture gardens and loved them. She lived in a very similar climate to mine as well. And so between, you know, the friend I knew and then sort of this online friend, I was like, I think I should just just give this a try. So I'm still fairly new to it myself. I'm going on. We just came through our third summer with Google Culture Gardening. And I absolutely love the technique for many, many different reasons. But that's how I, I heard of it and got into it. OK, so are all of your garden beds Hugo Culture or did you do test plots where you just did some of them that way? Or how did you begin to implement them? Mm. Initially, we put in, I have my whole kitchen garden is actually a Hugo culture style garden. So in there I grow, you know, maybe some zucchini and tomatoes, herbs, um, just kind of, you know, a typical kitchen garden stuff. And then we actually, with our berry patch, we're still in test mode with it as far as our climate and what grows well here. But we actually put our entire berry patch we did in the ground Hugo culture beds for that, and uh, they've done really, really well. Oh, fascinating! So, okay, so you're you just went all in. So you're using it for both the annuals and perennial fruit yes. crops. Fascinating. Okay, so there's first off, we probably should back up because I just get so excited and jump into <laughs> it. But what exactly is? I know you said that the base of it is using wood, but what exactly is a Hugo culture? bed if you like as you're constructing it or if you were going to implement one like the the basis mm. of it what is it actually composed of 
Well, it's 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 a little bit different. And that's partly why I've just recently started getting more into permaculture. And a Google culture bed is actually a permaculture style bed. So what they say is the layers you put down, it actually mimics a forest floor. So the base is wood, literally like logs. And then on top of that, um, some people will put down a layer of like smaller wood bits, um, tree branches, smaller logs. And then on top of that, it's it's got four layers. The next layer is the hot matter. So when you create the bed, as the wood breaks down, it tends to pull nitrogen mm-hmm. to help it with a breakdown process. So you put down a layer of hot matter that can be like fresh grass clippings, leaves. Some people even put down, you know, hot animal manure, manure. hot as in a couple months old. But yes. Okay. Hardy layer of that. They pack it down into all the wood. And then on top of that, they put, this is where resources will vary. But personally, what I found, I need about 10 inches of good growing soil because it's going to settle because it's on top of wood. Um, But about 10 inches of good growing soil. And then the last layer is actually a layer of mulch. So it varies what people use. Some people like to use leaves. Some people like to use straw. Um, even you can use wood chips. And basically that those are the four layers, your base of wood, your uh, your layer of hot matter to help the wood break down faster, a good hardy layer of, of good growing soil. And then you have your mulch covering because with the wood underneath, they're definitely no till garden beds. So the mulch is your weed suppressant. And then that bed just sits there over time. That wood is going to rot and break down underneath. It releases warmth up into the soil. And then eventually, when that wood is broken down, it will act as a sponge and it will actually retain moisture. Fascinating. So when you're building these beds, they are a permanent bed, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. because logs are going to take quite a while, even without hot matter, in order to break down. But is there a general or recommended size of log to start with? I guess just the larger log you have, then the more hot material you're going to need in order to cover it and have enough layers. Um, But is there any like kind of rule of thumb as far as sizes go on the log that you're using for your base? Well, it really, the size of your log is really dependent on the height you want your bed to be, unless you're doing them in the ground and you can do that, dig a trench And some people will do that with, you know, huge two, three, three foot in diameter logs. Um, It's really up to your personal preference, though. Obviously, yes, smaller logs will break down faster. You'll lose that, you know, underneath soil warmth sooner that way. Um, But it really just depends on uh, what you want. I will say often when I was first researching Google cultures and trying to, you know, gather the information because I was like, these are labor intensive. I only want to do this once. I'm not going to pull them apart and do them again. So I did do some research. And actually what I found was in designing the beds, a lot of people, um, you know, they, they'll go for a massive, massive hill mound. Like we're talking like five feet high and they say it's great for growing their squash and whatnot. Um, But I have actually found that I prefer to use probably no more than a foot in diameter logs just for like a simple lower sort of raised bed style. So it really depends on what you have, what you want. Some people prefer to put their Google cultures in the ground and we'll dig a massive, 
you know, a massive trench and line it with wood of all sizes. It really just depends on what what you're going for and what you want. Okay. And is there any wood? I always get asked this, which is the reason I'm asking it to you, because I'm sure someone will have this question. And I know with using wood chips in the garden, really the only one from all of my research and studies that you want to stay away from is black walnut because of the juggalone compound, which can Mm. inhibit growth of certain plants. Have you come across anything in your research or doing them where it's like, oh, you probably should avoid this type of wood? Or is it pretty much fair game because it is so far underneath all of those other layers before the plant would ever reach it with its roots? Well, they do say you can use, like a lot of people say you shouldn't use cedar on your garden, or I think black locust is another one. Um, They do say to, if you're going to use, you know, those wood varieties to put them on your, your very, down as your very first layer so that they're well buried. And then, you know, your roots of your plants, you know, if you've got one layer of, let's say, cedar and then you know, two layers of alder or pine or something like that, your your roots, unless you're doing something like, you know, big perennial plants, your roots really aren't going to reach down there. So if you're doing something like a, you know, just say a garden bed for squash or maybe a kitchen garden, you can use anything, but the more um, desirable options for your top layers, you definitely want to stay away from wood that's slow to break down. So like oak takes quite a while. You want something on that top layer that will break down, you know, faster than the bottom layer would be ideal. So yeah, any of those plants that you know you're not supposed to have in the garden or any of those types of wood, put them down on your first layer and then put other wood on top of that that will decompose a little bit faster. Okay, great tip. And I do want to say, I actually did a lot of research on this when I was writing my book, The Family Garden Plan. And Cedar chips in the garden, especially a vegetable garden, and even around um, like blueberries and raspberries and a lot of your berry plants, uh, the University of uh, Washington State University uh, did a study and actually said that that's basically a myth that in their studies that they did with cedar, that there was no inhibit of growth of those plants. Interesting. And I know I thought it was one of those things that if you've been in gardening really any amount of time you hear oh don't use cedar now we shouldn't use cedar as livestock bedding for certain animals because it can definitely irritate them and i come from a a family of loggers and there's a lot of cedar that grows here where i live and a lot of it was logged and worked with and you can get um if you're working mills with cedar back in the day when they didn't have you know as much ventilation and mass and stuff that we do now you could get a condition called cedar lung where it could be harmful so it's harmful like respiratory Mm. wise to breathe it in. Now I'm talking when you're like cutting and, and, you know, really dealing with sawdust in large volumes, not just cutting a tree down or, you know, using right. cedar around, <laughs> you know, your property. Like I want to put that in proper perspective. I don't want anybody freaking out. Um, but we, when we, where we have our garden now, it was a forested area. And when we bought the land, we cleared that off where just where our home site is and where our garden is. And so there were, of course, a mix of trees. There's hemlock, fir and cedar. Um, And we have not had, and I've used different, you know, cedar chips and fur chips and everything, and I've never had any issue. So I just wanted to put that out there because I feel like people hear the word cedar and they just immediately think, oh, no, like I can't use that anywhere in the garden. And that's not really true, at least not in my experience and not what I found from research either. Uh, So, but Mm. I do love that you said Make sure that you've got the faster and the smaller pieces yes. and the wood that will break it. Because cedar is not a 
fast breakdown. No, no. <laughs> That's why people love to use it for, for building because it's one of the ones that will actually stay, especially in a wet climate like where I live. It's, it's one of the few things that you can actually use uh, that won't rot right away. So really good tips, though, there on the wood and how you want to have those layers based upon how how they break down. For though for the garden and doing these beds, you've mentioned, which I kind of want to come back to because I have a feeling this could definitely be a pro, especially if someone lives in a cooler climate. And that is that the soil warmth. And you've been talking about releasing the heat to the soil above. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? And I feel like that might be a little bit of a unique thing to a culture type bed, though raised beds can have the benefit of warm soil versus in ground. Uh, but I think we should like, let's extrapolate that a little bit because yeah. I think that it can be a really great pro for folks. Yeah. So like I said before, as the wood decomposes, um, the action releases warmth into the soil above. So I will notice here where I live, we get, you know, we can get up to four feet of snow in a year. It just depends. But the snow always comes off of my Hugo cultures first. And then partly because they are most, well, my berry patch is in the ground Hugo cultures, but my kitchen garden, it is a raised bed. Also because it's sort of in a slight mound or round, the sun, especially the south facing slopes, the sun comes off of those faster. And then of course, that wood is decomposing underneath, especially in the spring as temperatures start warming up some, still usually not warm enough to plant um, my normal, my main vegetable garden. I can usually plant my hugel cultures for sure two weeks ahead of time. And things mm-hmm. are always ahead in the hugel cultures just because of, I think, that wood breaking down. And then, of course, like I said before, you have different slopes and angles on your beds. And so that is something I have loved growing like tomatoes in it. Um, a lot of people prefer to grow those warm weather, the, the warm weather crops in them, like your squash, your pumpkin, zucchini, tomato, eggplant, peppers, all those things. Cause they love those warmer roots. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, I wouldn't say like some people, there's actually a lot of myths out there about Google cultures that I was kind of when I first stepped into this, I was I was watching. I was like, is this really going to be true? And kind of like testing and seeing it's not, you know, some people are like, you'll be like, you know, months ahead on your growing season. It's not that extreme, folks. It's not <laughs> that extreme. But you do get a little bit of a head start. And I would love to experiment actually with some cold frames on there as well. I haven't done that yet, but I actually think I could probably get another one to two weeks head start if I had cold frames on my Google cultures as well, just trapping more of that warmth. I bet, especially like you were saying with it being mounded and on the Southern exposure side, Mm -hmm. I bet you definitely could if you had the cold frame on that side, at least I've experienced not in a Google culture or a mounded like that, but just any Southern exposure area of our yard. If I pop a cold frame on there. Yeah. I've noticed. So fascinating though, because you're you would be pairing the benefits of the cold frame and a microclimate by using that mm-hmm. southern exposure. But when you pair that with the actual soil warmth beneath the surface because of the way this bed is layered, oh, now that my gardening, I'm like, ooh, my geek is, inner geek is coming out. I'm like, this is exciting stuff. This is fascinating. I love this. Um, okay, you've got me really, really intrigued now. I'm super fascinated with this. When it comes to both yearly, I would say, and then also within like a growing season, especially say the first year and then versus your maintenance years, 
are you having to save of extra fertilizing? So maybe watering with like a liquid fish emulsion or anything like that that first year. What does that look like? Or or you don't really have to to do anything because of the way it's all just breaking down and feeding everything really well. Well, that is, I would say that's there's pros and cons with everything. I would say that is probably one of the cons of a hugel culture is I think this last year they probably settled. I saw less settlement, but you are going to have to add soil to them unless you put on, you know, two feet or something. You're going to want to add soil to them. I usually do it either in the fall or in the spring before I plant. And I mean, in a normal garden, you're supposed to add, you know, some form of composted matter to your beds. But I would say the first two to three years, you're really, your beds are really going to settle. That wood's going to shift underneath. New cracks are going to be formed. The soil's going to fall down in. And so I add probably for the past three years, I've added probably three to four inches of soil, either in the spring or uh, or in the fall after the growing season is done. But just to keep them topped up because there's so much going on and so much is shifting. It's amazing actually how much they settle. And so, yes, I I would recommend, especially until that stuff finishes settling, which I think it's around year five that it's supposed to be more stationary. But you will have to top them up. It's almost like you let them age and ripen, sort of like a cheese or something. So that's kind of one of the downsides to Google culture gardening. It's great once it's established, you've got a permanent, you know, you can make it in the ground or a permanent raised bed, whatever you want in that respect. But there definitely is a bit of maintenance. Of course, then they're mulch. So you need to pull back your mulch to add on the new soil. So that would be probably the biggest challenge I found with Google cultures would be just you do need to top them up until they're they're settled and fully established. Okay. You know, what's really funny is I feel like with all the different methods and options that we have from gardening, from doing, you know, permaculture or back to Eden, uh, lasagna gardening, which Google culture mm. kind of... It is yeah. a form of permaculture. Yeah. It's also a form of lasagna gardening, not yes. in the exact same way that like root the Ruth Stout method or other things like that, but very, very similar. It's just a, a little bit different execution. Um, and even if, you know, you're choosing to till and, and to work organic matter in that way or cover crops, but really no matter what method of gardening you choose, it's always something that you are working to and continuing to improve the soil like there really is at least not in my discovery and especially in testing methods like you know like you were saying like no matter what method you're like you're gonna find people will be like oh like you don't have to do anything and it works awesome (laughs) and and it it sounds great but I have never experienced that in testing all the different methods over two decades 22 years of gardening on my own as an adult I have never, there are some methods that, that do seem to require less work in different aspects mm. for sure. But I've never found any gardening method that is truly hands off that you don't have to do some type of maintenance to it or adding in of stuff or Absolutely. weeding, you know, even with, with the mulch, like, and like you're saying, there are things that get better over time. Like you have to wait for certain things to get established in bed sometimes before you really start to see it. I feel like that's with weeding. Like, don't let those weed seeds go to, yes. you know, don't let them go to seed because then you're going to get more. And if you stay on top of them year after year after year, you will begin to see a decline. 
but there's still always going to be that work. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I sometimes feel like when we hear about new methods or talk to different people about gardening, it can be really easy to romanticize, but Mm. any method that you pick, there's going to be work and maintenance. And so I think it's just good to mentally prepare yourself for that. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know it is funny. People are always looking for the easy way out. And it's like the good things in life are never easy. They just aren't. So amen. Yes, completely <laughs> agree. Um, so with the hookah culture, though, one, it sounds like it's really good. As you were mentioning, you have really rocky soil. Mm. And so if you have really poor soil, maybe not rocky, but I'm going to assume, especially if it's really clay based, a really poor drainage or very compact, that this is also a really good option to use in those types of situations. Absolutely. And the beautiful thing with them is, you know, if if you live in a really dry area, you can put your hookah cultures in the ground to retain more moisture. Or if you just have, you know, if you live in a, I live in a fairly cool climate. So I love, you know, doing them above the ground for raised beds when we have a really, really wet spring. They drain well mm-hmm. still. So, yeah, I think they're a wonderful option for um, a wide variety of different things. But, yeah, there's definitely some real perks to them in that respect. Yeah. Now, have you done, just because I'm curious, because we did a test with our main in-ground vegetable gardening bed where we're going on is it year two or three now? I have to think. I think year two now, a full two years, where half the garden I covered in wood chips and then half the garden I did it. I did not. Um, and so I just did, I did a soil test before we implemented it. And so I had a baseline of all of the soil, you know, it was the same, everything, you know, what the levels were. And then we implemented the wood chip method on half of the garden and doing no-till on that half with these wood chips and then the other half doing how we normally did. And so into year two, because a lot of these, as we, as I, you know, you and I were sharing back and forth, they take some years to implement and to see the benefits and to see the changes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so year two, I did a soil test, one on the wood chip side and one on the other. And they were as the same base soil before we implemented. So I had that. And what I found really fascinating was the wood chip side of the garden which wood chip and hookah culture are not the same thing. So I I'm, I'm, want to make sure I'm prefacing that as well. But the pH level on the wood chip side actually went to alkaline. It was uh, se- seven mm. on the pH scale is neutral, which for most vegetable gardens, you want it to be in the six pH yeah. range. So it had actually went up to 7.2 pH, which means I need to add some elemental sulfur to it in order to get it a little bit more acidic. So when I was planting in the rows, like pulling the the wood chips back and planting in it this year, I was adding sulfur (laughs) Um, just in those rows and not broadcasting over. But I'm just, I was so curious, have you done any soil tests and have you noticed anything about pH? But the wood chips, the wood, excuse me, not wood chips, but the logs and hookah culture, they're a lot further under the soil. So I don't know that it actually would. But I'm just curious if you have seen anything like that or heard anything about that in your research about pH levels in the soil, or does it all seem to be pretty good? You know, I haven't done any tests, partly because we do have a little bit of native topsoil that we've used in our gardens, but a lot of it we've had to bring in from outside sources. And honestly, I just find like 
it's just like a normal garden. You know, you have your, your primary growing soil that your plants are pulling their nutrients from. And so what I have heard, I've never tested it, but what I've heard is that the wood doesn't affect the pH unless, you know, you get right down into the wood that's directly above or that's the soil that's directly above your wood. Then I think you might see a difference, but because you keep it topped up so well, I really, I haven't, I haven't noticed. I find it's just based on, you know, if I bring in good soil, I get a good harvest. If I, you know, get poorer soil from over here, things don't grow quite as well. I really don't think the wood makes that much difference. Now, if you used wood chips on the soil, you might find, you know, some variants, but I actually usually use straw. So I, I can't say on that one for sure, but my experience has just been, it, it just depends on what your soil is and what you do with it. That's what makes the difference. Okay, that's that's good. And like I said, your, the hookah culture is quite different than wood chips, unless you're only using wood chips as the mulch on the the beds right. on that on yeah. that top layer, which which you're not. So anyway, very fascinating with the hookah culture bed. So I think one of the things that you mentioned, which I think is really smart, not just for doing hookah culture, but really any type of your gardening, is to use as much raw material as possible from your land, which is also mm-hmm. going to mean that your gardens may look slightly different as well as your horticulture beds than other people's because you really are trying to use as much as you can from your own land. So for you, I know you said that you like to use straw. Was there, and obviously the wood, any wood that you have available from your own land. Um, but what have been some other things that you have pulled or seen that other people use just if someone's like, well, I don't have, you know, like trying to think of what they have and being, oh, can I actually use this in my hookah culture bed or not? Uh, for mulch or just to design the bed? Both, actually. Oh, both. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, in my ebook, I do have a list of like all the wood types. Interestingly enough, you can use pine. I've even heard of people using fir for their wood base. Um, if you use willow, you want to make sure it's really dead before you put it in because it mm. will tend to sprout. And then, like we said before, there's um, oak is often used, maple. Um, you can use the hardwoods. Um, that's fine. But just be aware they'll take longer to break down. And then trying to think what else. I think elm was on the list. There's it's it's actually very interesting. It's pretty much any type of tree that's out there you can use for your base. Now, again, like I said before, some you should put down as your first layer. And then when it comes to your hot matter, if you have chickens, horses, cows, um, all that stuff, bedding, often I have a friend here who keeps goats and we used, interestingly enough, we used her goat bedding as our hot layer in some of our beds, which goat manure actually isn't that hot. So I was very curious to be like, is it, is it gonna work? totally fine. It worked very well. So any type of animal manure for the hot layer, you can use grass clippings, you can use leaves. Some people even just use, you know, like their kitchen compost. If they have a compost pile, they'll just dig out their compost, layer it down on that wood. And you want it to be fairly thick. You want a couple inches of compost, but it's actually (laughs) some of the images. If you research this online, it's actually kind of gross seeing what people put down (laughs) That I can imagine now that you say yes. that. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. So, <laughs> but the idea is just, you know, you just want uncomposted matter is basically the idea with a hot layer. 
And then with soil, like you can mix together, you know, native soil with composted animal manure. Again, anything in that respect will work for mulch, you know, wood chips. I actually sometimes like to use lawn clippings. If you're sure your grass is short enough that you don't have seed heads in it, I will dry out lawn clippings and those actually make a wonderful mulch as well for the the top covering straw, wood chips. Some people use leaves. I've seen that before. They'll shred up leaves and use that as their mulch. So it's really just kind of anything that naturally grows on your land. You can pretty much use it. So it's very versatile. Okay. I have one last question for you. And that is, does the trees or the wood that you're using for the base layer, does it, is it okay if it's older? Does it need to be green, like just fallen or does that matter? Um, it doesn't really matter. I mean, if it's if it's like older rotting wood, of course, you're not going to get the same release of heat as you would with, you know, green wood. But no, you can use whatever you want. We've often thrown, um, you know, just old rotting logs on our property. Like, why not throw them into our, our in the ground hugel cultures in our berry patch? So you can really use anything you want. And it kind of depends what you're going for. If you want you know, a lot of the heat, obviously, eventually that's going to, the wood's going to break down enough. It's not releasing heat anymore. But if you want that, make sure you put some, you know, green logs in the mix. But um, if you just want the sponge for holding the water, you know, you can make it all with old rotten wood if that's what you want. So it sort of depends what you're going for in that respect. Okay, great. Because one of the things is we were using wood chips on our garden. I We had used some larger, it's not as fine as sawdust, but it's not as large as wood chips. It's kind of in between, but it wasn't from green <laughs> trees or, or branches that had just been downed. It was from my husband's sawmill. And so a lot of people were making comments, which is great. Like, I don't know everything. And so I love learning. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, you know, that's probably why you had some issues with the soil level tests that I had. It wasn't just peach, but it was lower in nitrogen. And so they were saying if you use the fresher green material as your wood chips, then that will feed the soil more than obviously dead, older carbon, mm. <laughs> which makes sense. So I just wasn't yeah. sure if that translated over to Kugel culture beds as much as it did in that instance. And it doesn't sound like it does. So that actually makes me very happy because we do have some older wood that um, I might be testing <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> some absolutely. of this out on. Yeah. So yeah. great to know. Okay. Awesome. Well, I know every time I learn so much um, when you come on and share and I want to thank you so much. And for people who are like, okay, I want to see these in actions. I really want to look into doing Hugo culture. Uh, where's the best place for people to get more info and connect with you on this subject? So you can go to my website, atraditionallife.com. And I also have some YouTube videos up on my YouTube channel, which is also a traditional life, just running over some of the basics of Google culture gardening and all that. Awesome. Well, we will have links for that as well in the blog post that accompanies this episode so that you can go and check that out in further detail. And again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Yeah, thanks, Melissa. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did and learned a ton. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope that you signed up and that I'll get to see you in the live training on the free herb class that I'll be doing. 
I truly value our time together and I can't wait to be back here with you next week. So blessings and mason jars for now, my friend. Mm-hmm.